as bizarre as I know it sounds, under corporate capitalism and corporate governance, ways must be found to make the general public less productive and less self-reliant. And school is the mechanism to do that. A look at the marijuana economy will reveal clearly some of the distortions to everyday life which result from trying to avoid overproduction. Pot is easy and inexpensive to grow. If it were legal to do so, as it was when George Washington was growing it, the commercial market would be ruined. Anti-marijuana policy is unmistakably the best friend the illegal drug industry has. In the real world of self-interest, huge sums constantly flow from the illegal drug industry into the hands of its nominal enemies. And I'm not doubting their sincerity. They are the enemies. But huge amounts of money come from the growing of drugs and end up in the hands of the people who denounce liberal legislation because the industry must keep the business illegal. Otherwise, anyone can do it. Common sense should tell you this must be so unless the criminal drug cartels are absolute fools. The beneficiaries of this largesse need not be aware of this dynamic at work. They need only persist in their anti-drug efforts to fulfill their end of the bargain, which prevents overproduction of the crop. Now, I removed a chunk here. John Taylor Gatto talks about the contradiction between the story told to children that grades are essential for your future health, wealth and happiness and the evidence of real life that political leaders tend to be C students rather than A students. He says the religious ministry is the only area where A students dominate and leaves his audience to draw their own conclusions from that. Now we pick up where John Taylor Gatto is talking about the importance of observing real life rather than memorizing stuff from books when it comes to making new discoveries. Read a book by an MIT professor called Discovery. His name is Robert Scott Root-Bernstein. And it's simply a very thick book. It simply deals with the mental processes that lead to breakthrough discoveries, exposing the secrets of nature. And one thing is pretty uniform. You take a creative scientific mind, you surround it with assistance, lab equipment, a budget, that's it. It dries up and has to do what most of the scientists you ever heard of do. They steal to work from their graduate students and publish it under their own name. And having this cutting an ice cube tray into shapes, you know, and thinking, what am I going to do for this chemical or that chemical? 
apparently fuels this creative breakout in conventional thinking that leads you to the discoveries. Now then what happens is some great institution sucks the discovery in, gets government money, corporate money, foundation money, and it gets the imprimatur of Caltech put on, rediscovering. He's a pretty well thought of physicist at MIT who wrote it. So, to competition except one kind destroys your ability to associate and combine successfully with other people because they're your rival. The one exception to that, which I think is the key to a successful life, there are a lot of keys, but I think without this, you never, never can sustain in good times and bad successful life. You have to compete against the mediocre part of yourself. You have to be able to see that the work you put out, that they stamp A plus, is very mediocre work and you copied the middle section of some Austrian website, you know, or whatever. If you constantly compete against yourself, you're never content. You're always trying to find the boundaries of your own possibilities. And even at 75, it's so exciting to do that, that there just isn't a dull moment, nor do you need much of anything to sustain a pure kind of uh, happiness. Buffett had his first lucrative business at age six. By the time he was 13, he had five streams of revenue pouring into his depression pocket. But attempting to win against faceless others inspires you to cheat and gain the system. So why should you follow Buffett's road to wealth when Bernie Madoff's is so much easier to follow? Why strive to emulate Babe Ruth with Barry Bonds chemical success is much more reliable. The classroom version of performance enhancing drugs is cheating and sucking up to the instructor. It teaches you nothing. Just so competing for grades and praise forecloses lifelong lasting rewards which only learning for its own sake can bestow. Competition was selected by the canny, crushing school designers to divide the young against one another, to pit their parents against the other kids' parents. Divided people are easiest to manage. Caesar's Gallic Wars, which I read in sixth grade in a coal mining town, was once a standard secondary school textbook that illustrated this principle. But although it's very well written and very interesting to teenagers, and it's still a staple in elite private schooling, it has vanished entirely from public schools. 
I think this is the last part. It's called as a vampire fears garlic. The marketplace fears wisdom. Well-schooled populations are usually trained to pay lip service to democracy. At the same time, they're being conditioned to avoid the attitudes and behaviors democracy requires. It's a dilemma without an easy answer because while our national consciousness honors the idea of democratic society, our national economy and our government would wither and die under anything less than a command and control reality. Would you teach critical judgment and moral behavior to everybody? Tell me something, if you would. How could an economy like ours, grounded in the global sale of war machinery, industrially produced meat, fruit, and vegetables, which has a nutritional value about half of what farm products had in 1940, that relies on financial trickery and the mass sale of magical programs of schooling, not all of them inside schools. How could an economy like this endure in a climate of critical intelligence? When I was growing up during World War II in a coal mining town near Pittsburgh, the general ability to debate abstract concepts such as overproduction, hyper-democracy, and divide-and-conquer politics was much, much more widespread among ordinary people than I have ever seen in New York City in the lofty academic precincts at Columbia University. A vivid memory I carried for 65 years ago is one of the favorite games of the snot-nosed kids I ran with who would huddle near the open doors of the town saloon so we could overhear conversations among miners and mill workers drinking at the bar. Their discussions, which you might fairly call shouting matches, were richly laced with ideas in conflict. And they were of the same high caliber as the conversations I heard on the bocce courts at the Italian club on Main Street or in the bowling alley, where I set pins for a dime a game. Now that might fall on your ears as hyperbole. So your very first assignment, if you're serious about this, is to read E.P. Thompson's classic account of working class intelligentsia in 19th century Britain, passionately striving for a life of the mind and for the training necessary to express their ideas clearly and forcefully. This was an appetite, I should add, which the better classes took vigorous steps to shut down. The book I'm recommending to you is entitled The Making of the English Working Class. It had to be made. It didn't exist naturally. Remember those ten-year-old boys building racing yachts and cutting new entrances for their homes? I never did those things 
but I made several soapbox racers with similar plans in 1945 when I was 10, and I built a rubber band-driven P-51 Mustang that could fly four city blocks at respectable altitudes, and furthermore, every 10-year-old I knew did things like that in working class Monongahela, Pennsylvania, before modern pedagogical principles were applied to its schools. At Xavier Academy, the Jesuit boarding school, where I was sequestered for one year in 1943-1944, we learned fundamental algebra in third grade and studied dialectics in fourth grade. Then returning to public school in the coal mining town, I read Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, John Milton, Shakespeare, in a common seventh grade class. And in ninth grade, I got the option to read the Latin writers again in Latin. Today, all that stuff, including the freelance building projects, are looked upon as child abuse. But no working class kid I knew would have agreed. It was so exciting to grow a powerful mind. Nobody had to browbeat us much to do it. And if that sounds too radical for you to swallow, I'm going to prescribe two very short autobiographies that should not only cure your skepticism, but make you choke if the standard equality you're familiar with is public schooling. The first is the autobiography of John Stuart Mill. And the second is the autobiography of Norbert Wiener. Wiener is regarded as the grandfather of the computer revolution, and Mill, I hope, needs no introduction. At birth, both their fathers, certifiable lunatics, deliberately set out to make their sons geniuses without benefit of a single day of school instruction, and both succeeded in this aim. I think almost anybody could if they were as crazy as Father Mill and Father Wiener. The precise details and blueprints they follow are in these short articles. Now, I edited a couple of minutes well, here because of the noise. John Holland, he was spoken of as the next Republican candidate for president, said in a speech that the schools in his city, quote, had been seized as an octopus would seize its prey, and that the schools were wrapped in the, quote, tentacles of an invisible creature acting through the great private foundation of Carnegie and Rockefeller. You could say things like that in 1922. By the end of World War II, nobody who worried about an academic career would dare say a word seriously critical of the real power which manages institutional schooling. And no newspaper would if it wanted to keep its advertising base. After all, school administrators and politicians 
are only flunkies. They're flunk front men in the school game. And woe betide any reckless traitor who invites the public behind the scenery to see how the school illusion is manufactured. And in conclusion, in conclusion will take another seven and a half minutes, you've been very patient. <laughs> this part's called Who Cares About Performance? Early schooling in colonial America aimed at creating desirable skills like expression, the arts of association, concentration, imagination, cooperation, good manners, and the potent active literacies of persuasive speaking and writing. The descendant form that we're familiar with stresses memorizing detached bits of information said to be necessary to learn abstract categories of intellect called subjects. What subjects actually are or what they're for, no teacher hired in America could tell you, no school administrator could tell you, but subjects are what schools teach. Only accidentally do they teach skills. Notice that skills training cannot be tested by paper-pencil examinations, only by performance. Subjects, however, demand passive-tested memory. Whether those memories can ever be applied to something useful is never an issue that matters one jot or one tittle to any school. Nobody with an ounce of common sense. This is a challenge to you. And if you've ever contradicted what I'm going to charge you with, then your absolute liberty to say nothing he said should be taken seriously. Nobody with an ounce of common sense asks for test scores when hiring. Do not ask your barber, your grass cutter, your babysitter, your doctor, your lawyer, or your architect for their test numbers. Because on some level, you know the data is absolutely worthless, however many tens of billions of dollars it takes to produce. As the 21st century concludes its first decade, mass schooling as much as it was in 1910. Certainly that way for the poor and the ordinary. It's test-driven, bell-driven, pedagogue-dominated, and thoroughly dumbed down. I'd be surprised if you know that the term pedagogue or the umbrella term pedagogy are labels borrowed from the ancient Mediterranean world where they designated a specialized form of slave and that particular slavery respectively. Do you find those survivals curious? Do you think they endured over thousands of years by accident? School is the great disconnector. It disconnects children from the working community where a variety of styles and techniques are on display for study. 
It disconnects them from family relationships, from valuable neighborhood associations. It disconnects them from one another and distances them from their own inner lives. Our first national commissioner of schooling, William Tory Harris, wrote that school, quote, must give training in self-alienation, a task best undertaken in dark, airless corridors in preference to cheerful surroundings. He wrote that in his book, Philosophy of Education, published in 1906. You could, as they say, look it up. Standardized schooling by force is not even remotely about education. It's about the same things in America that it was about in ancient China, Hindu India, and Prussia. The Germanized version of the instrument focuses on converting individuals into a mass population with the ease of managing them. Once we had a national entrepreneurial culture, and in such a culture, that's Lincoln saying we all have independent livelihood. Personal sovereignty is an absolute blessing. But in a corporate culture, it's a curse. Corporate logic demands the young be rendered radically incomplete to the end of converting them into human resources and consumption machines. Nearly all work in our society now has been centralized. To pull this transformation off, children in bulk have to be taught to think of their future in terms of jobs instead of independent livelihood. And I told you about Lincoln's speech. Jobs are for serfs and slaves. And that was a common American understanding in 1850. But the great waves of immigration brought to these shores had to have those independent attitudes broken before they took hold. Parents were taught to accept lifelong subordination, not as a curse, but as a freedom from burdensome responsibility, taught to turn their children over to anonymous agents of the political state as further freedom from responsibility. You can't imagine how many, I'll say women, I'm about to say parents, have said to me in the 19 years I've been traveling all over the planet, asking about homeschooling and say, there's people crazy and want to spend that much time with their own children. <laughs> so, the new economy, which was built by Carnegie and Rockefeller, Astor, Vanderbilt, Harriman, and a few other men, not many more, drenched America with pro-school propaganda. They bought up every newspaper and journal of importance to assist in the project of colonizing the public mind. The way they uh, influenced the immigrant 
including famous representatives of the immigrant press, like the Jewish Daily Forward, to get them on the side of this project, was simply to extend or withhold advertising, which in a marginal business operation is life and death. You know, I got that fact from a footnote or a long back in the back of John Higgins' magnificent book about immigration called Strangers in the Land. During a court trial in 1920, testimony to the effect of corporations buying off the immigrant press came out, was recorded, and Higgins you know, disinterred it from the graveyard of, you know, the files, and breathtaking. In short order, these people convinced us that seat time in school was equivalent to education, even though their own laws showed no commitment to school confinement at all. Rockefeller and Carnegie went into factory work Rather than go to school, Carnegie begged his parents at age seven not to waste his time in schooling. And he became a thread winder in a garment factory. But when he was 11, because he was out in the world, he had his ears open, he heard that the railroads, which were the Microsoft of their day, were looking for Cracker Jack telegraph operators, when he wasn't winding thread, he was practicing, he submitted himself to the Pennsylvania Railroad at the age of 12, they hired him on the spot by performance, not by his grades and telegraphy. He demonstrated he was better than anyone they had, and by the time he was 19, he was the partner of the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. He had a Scottish accent so thick that he was a constant figure of derision. He never had the money to buy a sandwich. No patron stepped forward, but he, very much like a long list of people you can read about, if you buy my weapons of, of mass instruction, like the CEO of the RCA Corporation, figured out what the layout was and put themselves in the way of opportunity. And your kids can do that today as long as they follow sterling examples like Michael Dell who didn't go to college, like Bill Gates who didn't go to college, like Steve Jobs who didn't go to college, like Ted Turner who didn't go to college, like the founder of the Whole Foods Market who didn't go to college. I can keep you here for a whole day. How come someone hasn't bothered to tell you this? Don't they know it? Okay. At this point, I'm not going to tell you about the Barbie project, which was what I'd recommend if you have kids or nieces and nephews in school. When the standardized test is set before you, 
right on the front of the test, I would prefer not to take this test. Justice Herman Melville's brilliant office clerk began to say to the boss when he said, go to the post office, get the mail bar on it. I would prefer not to do that. He didn't yell, he didn't scream. He asserted his right to affirmations and to none. And that story deviled me all my life. In a couple of years ago, I figured out just what it meant. Now we continue again a slightly edited Q&A session because the recording quality was not so good. The next questioner asks John Taylor Gatto about his public resignation. I think it was July 15th on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal. But they decided to publish it then. I had sent the article in in January or February. I had reached the end of the line, not the end of my patience, but by working on a daily basis to sabotage the system by providing the raw material of an education to as many students whose mothers allowed it, as I always say, it's the mothers. I had achieved a certain notoriety where visitors would come to see what on earth I was doing that my ghetto kids were winning all the speaking and essay competitions in New York City that were set aside for drunk science and Stuyvesant students. Why were these little black and brown kids from Harlem and Spanish Harlem doing standing up before the city council and asking that a bill to keep public swimming pools at the top of the priority list? Well, how were they able to do that? One way they were able to do that is that I made a standing offer to I had about 120 students a day, and I said, you have the right at any time, as long as you're polite, to say, why are we doing this? And you'll be able to tell, in a lot of clues I'll give in my answer, whether I actually know why we're doing it, and I believe in it, or whether I'm doing it to stay out of trouble with the school administration. In the latter case, I said, you have the right to opt out politely and go anywhere in New York City and get an education for yourself. Once your mother did. But I had already lined up virtually all the months, so we were in cahoots. What happened was the fame, not that I got, that the kids got. There's always this guy Gatto in this ghetto school. What was going on? Well, I couldn't tell people what was going on because it was illegal. It wasn't just not forbidden, it was illegal to do these things. I'd send kids age 12 and 13 alone on the bus hundreds of miles away to drop in on the head of the uh, state senate and find out what he was doing to earn his money. Things like that. I would send kids to study the security arrangement at various institutions in New York City to learn how to penetrate places where school kids were forbidden to go. If I tell you we were never caught, now I'd give them a few, 
class lessons. I would say one of the ways they know you're a kid and not a student teacher from a local college is you grin too much, uh, you make jokes, you have bad posture, you slouch, you eat a sandwich. I said, what you have to do, you know, is to act like somebody who's got some clout and authority. They won't know the difference. You can get into these fancy auctions at Park Burnett where $10 million pains are being auctioned off. Otherwise, the garden spots you and turns you away. You can get into the sub-treasury building where all the used currency and the eastern part of America is in these huge glass cases and it's burned in furnaces. And most of the gold we have is down there bar after bar. Or you can start a business on school time. Or as one kid did, now this was the record. Out of 185 school days, he only attended school seven days. What was he doing the other 178 days? He and I and his mother had worked out a project for him to study how to crack his way into a daytime soap opera. I think it was General Hospital, but it was one another thing, you know, and he put himself in touch with actors equity, hung out the drugstores where the soap opera actors hung out. You know, he figured out how to do it, and he ended the school year not with a steady gig, but he got bit work on the soap operas. Once I was uncovered, I didn't have a maneuvering room any longer. I had to be able to read the morning paper, see an opportunity, and out of the 120 kids, know pretty well who, who could do it with problem, hand once, or ask for volunteers. It's not legal to do that. you got to get signed off by a number of levels of authority. So I picked the Wall Street Journal, because I said, if any general circulation population is not under the thumb of the school institution, as I knew the New York Times was, it'll be the Wall Street Journal. And sure enough, I sent in, I quit, I think. They published it with a jerky title. I may be a school teacher, but I'm not an educator. If you ever studied logic, as I know Dave Albert did, you'll know that the term educator itself is a measure of the uncritical consciousness you bring to the business. It's in logic known as begging the question. You don't know whether someone's an educator, nor can they arrogate that title to themselves. You do know they're a school teacher because it says that on their license. But an educator? Who could tell you whether someone was an educator? I think only the people who had passed under his or her management and only years after they got out would they suddenly be able to track successful parts of their attitude, their behavior, their intelligence to 
the person who opened that door for you. So I never allow myself to use the term, and I do think that making a sharp distinction between schooling, which is what you do to fish, and education, which nobody can do for you, it isn't conceivably possible that someone can educate you. You can determine to educate yourself, and then a lot of people could be useful to you. Without that commitment and that energy and that investment, you'll emerge well-schooled, which will fool a lot of people, because they're well-schooled too. You write your own script for the most part every day, every week, every month, every year. Do you know that the arc of your life, at any moment, the arc of your life, you can see all the past and you can make guesses about the future. Start your kids if they're 5 to 12 years old. Don't let a single day go by without reading a biography or an autobiography. The easiest way to do that is to get sources of good obituary because the whole arc of the life is set down in outline form. And by the time a kid digests a few hundred of those, they see that their own life, their own future is being made every day. It doesn't work for mommy or school teacher to say that you have to feel it, that the future is an extension of the past. There's no magic. You don't win a lottery. If you watch TV, there's no way that you don't have to pay the IRS, but you owe them. So don't buy the program that tells you you can sell for 50 cents on the dollar, that you can sell for a quarter on the dollar, for, for your credit, you can only you can only hand romance like this to a country full of very ignorant people, or that you can start speaking a foreign language in ten minutes. Well, you don't know is that that started two years ago with seven minutes, and I guess somebody said, you know, we better make it a little more realistic. That went to nine minutes, and now the ad that runs it. You can start speaking a foreign language in 10 minutes as soon as you stiff the IRS and stiff your credit. I mean, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> could, could somebody ask you a tough question in the bank? What do you make of the fact that there seems to be more story or publicity about unschooling uh, in the mass media? that kind of questions that it's not really about learning, that children don't learn any rules or morals or anything that will help them in life, and it's kind of this free-for-all. Do you see that as that really the numbers of unschoolers or homeschoolers is really starting to become a threat for the corporate? But the unschoolers are a threat to any settled interest, corporations, museums, churches. The unschooled are like fresh human beings. They're a fresh generation. It was unschooled people 
messing around in the laboratory, melting objects in an oven just to kill time, who saw a weird melt taking place, and as they tried to figure out why the object was melting that way, eventually came up with the double helix structure of DNA. That's what's in it. Crick. If you were steeped in the way things actually happen, like a tea bag is in hot water, you would be a dangerous person. Because you actually would be able to pick and choose experiences and raise the incidence of opportunity in your own life. I mean, how can a settled social and a settled economy tolerate you? So initially, if you go back to the 1970s, enormous numbers of people were thrown into jail and the kids taken and put in social work for homeschooling. What stopped that? And I hope I don't offend anybody here, because I, I have friends in the secular homeschooling world, and I have friends in the religious homeschooling world. But it was the intensely religious people who stopped the legal violation of homes by simply striking back with maximum force. And there's nothing a bureaucrat fears more than being confronted by someone who's determined to beat the bureaucratic rule. Because if the bureaucrat fails, which they will, because all they have is the cops and their paycheck to defend, the other people are acting out of principle, the bureaucrats have gotten rid of school superintendents, prince, they're flunkies. I know the papers is this a good one, it's a bad one. They're flunkies. If they don't do what they're told, they're given no wiggle room at all. Some of them have good hearts and good minds, and they sabotage the system. But God forbid they should do it for too many so that the Numbers generated by the system identify them as a source of infection and they're gone. They'll never be hired anywhere else again. That works, by the way, for doctors too. I recently had uh, a close association with a brilliant female doctor, black woman in Syracuse, New York, who had a large patient clientele with diabetes. And she knew that the standard treatments for diabetes did not work, were very expensive. And she, over the years, experimented and hit on several routines that aren't in the approved manual. Well, she doesn't have a, a medical license ever anymore, even though a hundred of her patients appeared at the hearing saying that she eliminated the diabetic. doesn't make any difference at all. You're jeopardizing enormous industries. When you do that, they're not going to tolerate So the only possible thing to do is to kill them. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, certainly at my age. <laughs> my imagination is exhausted, but not at yours. You know, you, you, you certainly keep resistance up. Sometimes you don't allow it to be seen. I always wore a dark blue pinstripe three-piece Porch Brothers suit to junior high school. Everybody else dressed like a boy and a girl. Made sure my shoes were spit polished there. And the principal dressed like a boy too. And the assistant principals dressed like boys and girls. They didn't know how to deal with me. And I volunteered for all the dirty duty, like lunchroom duty, you know. And I screamed at kids in the hall. But I was setting up a cover behind which. <laughs> <laughs> well, another question. Come on. Yes, ma'am. Was that from the get-go when you first got your license, or how long did it Fortunately, it was from the get-go, not because I ever intended to be a school teacher. I was a hotshot advertising copywriter. You mean you've never seen the ad for Haynes Hosiery? Legs are in the limelight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was responsible for creating 50 words a month and sitting around drinking the day away talking to people about adjectives. But unfortunately, in advertising, if you lose the account, I was on the Colgate account, Colgate Shaving Cream, and our big push, this was 1960, I think, our big push was Colgate Shaving Cream can even shave sandpaper. Now the way, the way we pulled that trick off was to scatter sand grains over a piece of glass so your thumbnail could shave that kind of sandpaper. The FCC sent a team around to investigate. There were 250 employees sent out all over New York City to buy some incredibly cheap kind of sandpaper, maybe in Brooklyn, you know, that Colgate Shaver King could not shave whisker, let alone So we were all fired when we were laid off. So in between jobs, teaching licenses in those days didn't have a picture on And my roommate, before I was married, and he was my roommate at Cornell, too, had won the New York State Gingerbread Contest when he was 13. He was working to be a chef, but meanwhile, he was a waiter at the Waldorf Astoria Bar called the Bull and Bear, that's still open. So he would come home at night with a thousand dollars, 1960, a $1,000 in cash and tips in his pocket. He would open a dresser drawer and throw it in. And I guess when there was, all the drawers were jammed with money, he said he was going to go off to the Virgin Islands, to St. Thomas, and open a fancy restaurant called the Club Comanche, which he did do, and the Comanche's still open down there, on the Dick's Pass on. So he left his teaching license, he taught one day, and he said, You'd have to be out of your mind to do that for a living. There was this teaching on you. I was in between jobs. I figured 
I'll substitute teach and borrow. Nobody cares except the parents. So I instantly got warm because they had a hard time keeping every class full. And I got a Spanish class for my first class. Now I speak 80 words in Spanish, but I can tell time in Spanish. So I asked the kids whether they knew how to tell time. They said no. And I said, well, I only had it for 40 minutes, but it only takes 20 minutes to learn how to tell time. So I taught any of these classes, five. By the third class, the principal, white of course, because it was black Harlem, and I wouldn't dream of her black principal. She comes in, her face is beat purple in color, she's so angry. Like the bomb in Times Square steam is coming out of her room, takes me out in the hall, tells me I've ruined the curriculum for the month of June. How will she explain it when the regular teacher comes back? I said, there must be some mistake. All I did was teach you how to tell time text funny men. But that was the entire curriculum for the month of June. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I never would be hired in her school again. But that's all right. Because the New York City schools were desperate for subs. So the second job I got was in Spanish Harlem. I was given uh, a third grade class in remedial reading. Before the class started, a little girl named Milagros Maldonado, I'll die with her name in my mind, came to the desk and said, I don't belong in this class. You know the way a lot of times a little girl, but little people have a strong sense of justice. She said, I can read anything. And I said, no, no, dude, this is all done scientifically. Little did I know. And she's like, she said, pick anything off the teacher's desk here, and I'll be able to read it. So I picked up this big, big reader, cracked it open. It was for an eighth grade. It's the devil and Daniel Webster. The sentences are 200 words long. They run backwards in the Latinate style. And the little girl flawlessly reads it. I said, don't worry, my Lord Rose. I'll speak to the principal. Sometimes mistakes are there. Well, I spoke to the principal. She turned beautifully. <laughs> so she wasn't in the habit of taking advice from a substitute teacher. She must have got you a lot to learn. These children are cunning. They will memorize the story and pretend that they go memorize the devil and Daniel Webster in Hollywood. <laughs> American Idol or something. So she said, I will come in at 3 o'clock show you. Well, Margaret could, but she said she could read anything, just as I could when I was her age, anything. And uh, she said, Milagros, you'll be moved on Monday. And then she turned to me and said, Mr. Guy, you never will be hired in the school again. So I was beginning to get <laughs> Something was up, even though I'm sure these ladies were not part of a conspiracy. They had learned that their good employment depended on not deviating from the template they were handed. How are you going to change 
that requirement, if you change that, it wouldn't be schooling, would it? In schooling, if one fin moves, all the fins move simultaneously. If one fish does a triple wiggle, they all do a triple wiggle. So these people know that that's what they've been hired to do. All the rest of it, they might chat over a cup of tea or a beer, you know, and they might even, no one's looking, make an exception for this family or that. Not many exceptions. I learned about the exceptions when every year some wealthy children would vanish from my class in the winter on and reappear six weeks later. And they'd gone on a cruise in the Mediterranean or the Caribbean or somewhere, and the school didn't have anything to say about that. But if I asked if one of my kids could go to the Metropolitan Museum because they had a particular interest in armor, you know, to study the armor collection over there, that would have to be approved by the assistant principal, by the principal, by the superintendent, by the school board. And of course, the kid would have graduated by the time <laughs> all those things would signed off on. So I saw there was a double standard of work. And of course, politically, how could there not be? You can't tell an influential parent that her kid can't take an opportunity. Because she knows how, or he knows how, to pull the levers of power, and the most highly placed school person is way, way down on the pecking order of power. They're all flunkies. They're all flunkies. The guy they picked to be in Washington as the whatever, the czar. They're flunkies. They're political appointees. They don't know a thing about teaching anything except by accident. Yeah, you know you have my opinion, school administrator. Of you're paying their salaries, their own retirement. What was the question? <laughs> you see why I, I, I have to have a script. Yes. Do you think it's possible to raise a passionate learner and an independent thinker while they go to public school? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. If you provide the opportunity for enough, and this will sound more grandiose than me, for enough life-changing experiences, if you understand what colonial Americans all understood, that there is no such thing as adolescence. Let's start there. It was an invention of a group of academic lunatics in the early 20th century doesn't exist in human history. So that all these strange behaviors you get from so-called adolescents, you're watching somebody who you're deliberately driving insane by artificially extending their childhood. Now let's get back to pre-adolescence. Nowhere in the world at any time in human history was somebody older than the age of seven considered to be a child. If you treated them as a child, they were on the face of a parasite. They had to take apart 
and adding value to the family, to the community. Let me tell you a magical secret. If you simply do that, your kids will start to educate themselves. And if you protect them from adolescence, which is easy to do the minute you step back far enough and say, how does the world know my kids and man wants it? Well, he pulls gum out of his mouth like this. He grins all the time. He slouches. He dresses like a bum. You know, but he'd love to have this range of opportunities. He'd love to be an intern in the police department or at City Hall, you know, or to run a business where it's pretty easy as a teenager to make an adult income. You have the energy except rebuffs, and the key to getting wealthy in this country is one way, it isn't inventing a, you know, a scientific discovery, it's sales. All the CEOs of all the corporations come up to the sales right now, and then you'll get an oddball who came somewhere else, they're all in the business of sales. Why would they put somebody who's an ex-student? And in the 10 minutes that I cut, John Taylor Gatto talks about the successes of Warren Buffett starting up a lot of businesses as a youngster. And Gatto underlines the importance of interaction in the real world as the single most effective way to educate your children. If you're worried children wouldn't get to university because they don't have exam passes, not a bit of it. University admissions officers, whilst they pay lip service to exams, are really looking for young people who have taken their education into their own hands and are actively pursuing it. Now this whole episode is inspired by my discovering that John Taylor Gatto, although semi-crippled, is still trying to get a book together. So if you hear this in mid-December 2016, it's not too late to... Follow the link from this show's webpage, unlockingguest.net slash 745, and that'll take you to John Taylor Gatto's Kickstarter page, and you can see how close he is to his target. Last I looked, there was 90-something percent of the money been donated and just needed a little bit more, but only got a week left. As always, if you'd like to download this or any previous episodes, you can do so from our MP3 archive, unwelcomeguest.net slash archive. And if you're familiar with the fake news story which corporate media has been pushing, I should value your opinions on any of these so-called fake news sites, which I am an editor to one, WikiSpooks. You can email me, unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net. Hey,